leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Nucleoside analogs are a widely used class of chemotherapeutic agents, but the ability of cancer cells to evade them and develop resistance limits their benefits and increases their side effects. Nucana, which is developing a new class of cancer agents dubbed protides, believes it can address this problem with nucleoside analogs by delivering them efficiently into cancer cells and preventing their degradation before they can act. We spoke to Hugh Griffith founder and CEO of Nucana, about the problems of resistance, how the company's protide technology works, and the pipeline the company is advancing in the clinic. You, thanks for joining us. Hi, Daniel. It's an absolute pleasure. We're going to talk about Nucana, its protide technology, and how it may be able to overcome the problem of cancer resistance with commonly used class of chemotherapeutic agents. Let's start with the problem, though. What happens in resistance? Uh, Thanks, Daniel. So traditionally, chemotherapy has provided a great benefit for patients. However, it remains relatively untargeted or untargeted and also quite prone to a variety of off-target toxicities that really do limit the effectiveness of these drugs. Within chemotherapy, there's a very important class of drugs known as nucleoside analogs. And in the U.S. alone, there are some 16 FDA-approved nucleoside analogs. And as a class, uh, they remain flawed for three primary reasons. And what we're able to do is overcome those three key reasons that are associated with suboptimal efficacy and poor toxicity. What are those three So the first challenge that these drugs, this class of important anti-cancer drugs has is that they need active transporters in order to get into the cancer cells. And quite often those transporters just simply aren't present or are present at very low levels so the drugs just don't get in. If they do manage to get in, they're also quite unstable compounds and very susceptible to breakdown. And that does two things. Firstly, it means that the drug will never exert its anti-cancer activity, but also it can release toxic metabolites that you really just don't want. And then the third challenge is the requirement for this class of drugs, these nucleoside analogs, this chemotherapeutic agents, to be transformed into their active form, the nucleotide analog. And again, that requires a series of enzymatic steps. 
And in cancer cells, sometimes those enzymes just aren't present or expressed at such low levels that the drugs are never activated. So it's uptake, breakdown, and activation are the three challenges associated with these chemotherapeutic agents. How significant a problem is this? Is there any sense of how common it is to see these therapies fail because of resistance? Yes, absolutely. So cancer cells tend to be very heterogeneous, so they they express these problems in various degrees. But the literature is very informative, and it, it tends to suggest that about half of cancer cells don't have these transporters on their membranes in sufficient quantity to get the drugs in. So that's about a half of cancer cells that these drugs just simply won't get in. Then once inside the cells, most of the cancer uh, cancer cells have these breakdown enzymes. So it can be as anything from 60 to 70% of the cells with these breakdown enzymes. So that means you're left with a very small amount of drug that manages to get in that then needs to be processed. Now, quite often those processing enzymes are initially present, but then the cancer cells are quick to evade them, and they either uh, are able to switch off those activating enzymes, or cells, cancer cells that don't have them can still proliferate in the presence of the drugs. So that means that for some of these drugs, they actually only work in the really small proportion of patients, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20% of patients. And the vast majority derive little benefit from these agents. A lot of attention these days is given to new chemotherapies, new, new immunotherapies. But in terms of the way doctors treat patients, what role do these more traditional chemotherapeutic agents play in cancer today? Yeah, so it's very interesting because everybody is so excited about the new range of opportunities and and targets that we have for treating cancer or patients with cancer. But the bedrock remains chemotherapy. So I think if you go and ask an oncologist today what the majority of their time is spent doing, it's prescribing chemotherapeutic agents. Now, the advantage and what we've learned over the last several years is that certain patients respond better to certain types of chemotherapy than other agents. We've also learned that by adding in some of the newer targeted therapies, the effects of the chemotherapy and the additional benefits of these new agents can be quite synergistic, so that's advantageous. But the bedrock for many, many tumor types, in fact, the majority remains chemotherapy. Uh, What's nice to see with the presence of immuno-oncology agents is that perhaps now patients are getting options here where they might not need to reach for chemo front line. They can maybe sometimes defer it after perhaps some of the more targeted agents have, have failed and they can then reach for it. Or in other cases, they still reach for chemo front line, but they're able to add in some of these newer agents as well to further enhance the benefits. Talk for a moment, if you would, about nucleoside analogs. What what are they, and, and how do they work? So our basic DNA, uh, for the replication of DNA, we have four naturally occurring nucleosides, uh, A, C, T, and G. And those are really the backbone and form that, that basics of the uh, DNA helix for replication and protein synthesis within our bodies. And what the pharmaceutical industry have done over the last 60 years is take these naturally occurring nucleosides and adapt them slightly. So they've put 
maybe a fluorine on these on these molecules or a chlorine atom or, or a variety of other methods to just change them slightly so that when the cancer cell chooses to divide, and sometimes this can also be the case of normal cells, they falsely incorporate these faulty nucleoside analogs with the fluorine on or the chlorine on, for example, and then that can lead to uh, chain termination so the cell just can't replicate. Uh, so that's the basics for this as a class of drugs, and they've been reached for since the sort of the 1950s and ever since really just been added to. You talked about what goes wrong with these in the case of resistance, but I take it also because of the, the toxicity of these two healthy cells, we're limited by dosing on them. Absolutely. The therapeutic window can be quite narrow. So traditionally with these agents, you try and dose them right at the maximum tolerated dose with the hope that they get into the cancer cells, get processed, don't get broken down, and are able to exert their activity. But with that comes quite often a range of unwanted toxicities. Uh, what we're able to do is broaden that therapeutic window very considerably. So hopefully that will be pre uh, present itself in a more efficacious treatment as well as hopefully a safer treatment. Well, you're developing a, a proprietary technology called Protide without getting too deep into the woods of phosphorometadine chemistry. Can you offer an explanation of how the Protide technology works and what it does? Yeah, so the, the traditional class of drugs, the nucleosides, we've covered that they need to be transported to get into the cell and then processed to their active form. Uh, the active form is known as a nucleotide analog, so it's been converted from the nucleoside to the nucleotide. And that's done with the addition of a phosphate group. And really, it's this phosphate that gives the molecule the energy to be incorporated into the DNA. So think of it like the Duracell battery pack. Now, sadly, we can't administer the nucleotide because the charge of the molecule is wrong. It won't get into the cancer cells. And secondly, that phosphate, that battery pack, is pretty unstable and just gets cleaved off. Now, what we've worked out is how to deliver the nucleotide, the active form. And we do it by protecting that phosphate group, that battery pack, if you like, with a very clever bit of chemistry known as phosphoramidate chemistry. And the result is what we call a protide. Uh, so really, it's the nucleotide, the active form, protected. And how we protect it is with an aryl group, an ester group, and an amino acid group. And it's that combination, that unique combination of aryl ester and amino acids that translate the properties that we're looking for. So we want our whole prototype to be stable enough to get into the cancer cell, but not too stable that when we're in it, we don't release the active form that will subsequently result in, in apoptosis or tumor cell death. So that's the clever bit. And these are all new chemical entities with you know, the usual composition of matter, matter patents and patent applications behind them. So what occurs so inside the cell to convert it to its active form? So that, it's, we've spent a lot of time on this. In fact, we've, we've made with our group and the groups behind us some 4,500 of these molecules to get that tuning just right. And what, we've, what, what starts off is it's a naturally occurring enzymes in the body known as esterases that knock that first esterase ester group off. Uh, 
and then that results in the amino acid in the arrow group also coming off. And it's that fine-tuning and getting that right stability profile so that we release inside the cancer cell that a lot of our know-how and, and IP is tied up with. And are you able to apply this to existing chemotherapeutic agents to increase their efficacy and safety? Yes, absolutely. So our, our first approach was to take those existing chemotherapeutic agents and hopefully significantly enhance their efficacy and safety. But we've also reached for some novel nucleosides as well and also applied the chemistry to those. So we've got both going through development right now. So for the first example, was we, we took a very widely used drug known as gemcitabine, a nucleoside analog. Uh, originally, it was developed by, developed by Lilly uh, under the brand, brand name Gemzar, and it was a very important drug and remains a very important drug today, approved in four indications and used widely in others. And by putting this very clever chemistry on this phosphoramidate chemistry, what we're able to do, we believe, is overcome the three key resistance mechanisms that were associated with a poor survival prognosis to gemcitabine. So we overcome the challenge of, of the transporter, we overcome the challenge of the breakdown, and we overcome the challenge of the activation step. And in previous studies, each one of those steps has been associated with a poor survival prognosis to gemcitabine therapy. So we're hoping that by applying this chemistry approach to what was essentially gemcitabine, we're able to really quite dramatically improve upon the, the parent nucleoside analog drug. You're in various stages of clinical testing for multiple indications. It's in a phase three study for pancreatic cancer. What do we know about it to date, and what has it shown about the ability of the prototype technology to act as expected? Yeah, so in the first in-human study that uh, uh, recruited 68 patients, uh, what we the first observation there really, and we, we tested a variety of different solid tumor types, so there were patients coming with 19 different primary tumor types, but they all had metastatic spread and rapidly progressing disease on study entry. And the first observation was that we were able to generate inside the patient's cells, and here we use their white blood cells as a surrogate because we've got easy access to those. We were able to show that we were able to get the active anti-cancer metabolite at over 200 times the higher level than gemcitabine was able to generate at a dose-for-dose at a -dose basis. So that was the first observation, much higher levels. The second observation was that despite these very high levels, the safety profile appeared to be favorable and was well tolerated. We didn't see any unexpected toxicity with this protided version of gemcitabine that wasn't historically associated with gemcitabine. So that was favorable. And then when we looked at the sort of the clinical efficacy side, we saw patients who had relapsed on prior gemcitabine getting a response on this drug. So a nice tumor shrinkage on uh, what we call a celerin or NUC1031, the protided version. Uh, we saw, so we saw responses in patients who'd relapsed on prior gen. We also saw really nice disease control and tumor shrinkage in patients who were actually refractory to prior gen. So they had had no, no prior benefit from gemcitabine therapy, but got nice 
durable disease control on, on the protided version. And thirdly, we also saw uh, responses in patients for whom gemcitabine wouldn't normally be reached for, so uh, indications where gemcitabine historically had not shown a benefit, and we saw real nice activity there as well. So a favorable safety profile coupled with activity after gemcitabine had failed or in patients for whom you wouldn't reach for gemcitabine was all very encouraging. And what's the clinical path forward? If all goes well, when might you be able to apply for marketing approval? Yeah, so we're, obviously we believe this agent will hopefully play an important role in the treatment of cancer in the future, and we'd like to expedite its development. So we have three key programs right now for Acelerin. The first is, is actually in biliary tract cancer, where we, in a phase one study, the investigators achieved some very high response rates uh, in a, an area of biliary tract cancer. So this is gallbladder and cholangiocarcinoma, etc., in an area where no drug has ever been approved before. And in a very, the first cohort of patients, of just eight patients, so a very small patient number, so we have to be cautious about how we interpret these results. But we saw essentially a doubling in the response rate. So taking the response rate from 26% with the current standard of care, which is gemcitabine plus cisplatin, to 50% with our protide acelerin plus cisplatin. So that was an encouraging signal. And we're now uh, in advanced discussions with the regulators as to how to best design a pivotal study, a phase three study, to uh, optimally develop this combination and hopefully lead to an NDA uh, application. The second area is in ovarian cancer, where again we've seen some really nice, strong efficacy signals, both with single agent acelerin and also acelerin in combination with carboplatin in ovarian cancer. So we're in phase two study with that right now and are planning a registration study for ovarian cancer as well. And thirdly, we have a phase three ongoing study in pancreatic cancer where we're taking patients who are that little bit frailer, who aren't considered suitable for combination chemo, but currently reach for single-agent gemcitabine, and there we're randomizing them to receive either single-agent gemcitabine or single-agent acelerin. And that study's uh, recruited over 130 patients to date with a target of 328 in, in total. You've got a, a second product candidate in clinical development. That's NUC 3373 for solid tumors. This is a, a candidate for other indications as well. What is NUC 3373? Yeah, so th thank you for giving me the opportunity to highlight this one because we're super excited about this protide as well. And it's actually based on a transformation of 5-FU, which is a a nuclear base, another one of these sort of same class of drugs uh, that's so widely used in the treatment of cancer. Uh, just like gemcitabine, it's on the WHO list of essential medicines, so it's one of those drugs that the world really is grateful it's got access to. And it's estimated that in North America alone, approximately 500,000 patients reach for IV5-FU each year for treatments of a variety of different cancers. So widely used, very important anti-cancer drug. And what we've done is we've protided it. And because of that, we think we overcome many of the real challenges associated with 5-FU, such as the transportation, the breakdown, the activation. We also feel that by protiding the 
PK and the PD profile has changed very dramatically, so that may also lend to much more convenient administration schedules as well. Given that you're working with well-characterized and, and long-used chemotherapeutic agents, how does that affect the clinical pathway or the time and cost of developing your, your therapies? Yeah, I think the beautiful thing here is with these first two agents that we're talking about is the mode of action and the toxicity profile of the parent drugs that we're improving upon, or we believe we're improving upon, is, is so well known that it enables us to run much faster than normally. So once we've passed that sort of proof of concept in a phase one study where we've shown that we generate the active anti-cancer metabolites at much higher levels and that the safety profile is favorable and we've worked out the dose because we can often use much lower amounts of these than the parent drug, we can then jump into studies that could potentially generate pivotal data for us, so into that sort of pivotal phase three setting quite quickly. And that obviously means we save time, so hopefully we can bring these to market quicker and to the benefit of patients quicker, and also hopefully save a degree of cost as well because we don't need to do quite as many of the studies to really establish which patient groups may derive the best benefit because that work's been done historically. Hugh Griffith, founder and CEO of Nucana. you thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.